You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 21 million women are between the ages of 45 and 59, the span during which menopause usually starts and ends. This group makes up nearly 20% of the women in the United States and almost 7% of the total American population. What are the latest findings? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. Dr. Minkin is a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Yale University School of Medicine and the author of many books, including A Woman's Guide to Menopause and Perimenopause and A Woman's Guide to Sexual Health. Dr. Minkin, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for asking me to be with you. Dr. Minkin, I only have one question. Why PMS and menopause? Do you have the answer? Um, no. <laughs> and I get a Nobel Prize probably for each one of those if I know the answer there. You know, we know that there are certain constellations of symptoms that make up PMS. That's actually the trickier one. I mean, menopause we know a little bit about as far as what causes it and, you know, causes some of the symptoms there. PMS is tougher. Basically, PMS or its uh, nastier big sister premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD, which is sort of really bad PMS, um, occurs in a lot of women. Probably 20, 30% of women have a pretty uh, significant PMS and about estimates of anywhere, you know, 5%, 8% of women have significant PMDD, which is really disabling as far as their lives, their work, relationships, things like that. And this is an entity which consists of a lot of both emotional symptoms and uh, physical symptoms um, that occur before the menstrual period. By definition, any of these symptoms have to be after ovulation, so they have to be in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. Um, in general, the time frame is 7 to 10 days before the menstrual period starts. Women can manifest things as far as anxiety, depression, sometimes sleeplessness, irritability. They also complain of things like blood bloating, breast discomfort, as far as somatic symptoms. And what's interesting is, you know, as soon as the menstrual period starts, the symptoms get better. Women start feeling better. Within a day or two of the onset of the menses, they feel much better. And to qualify as, you know, truly PMDD, you know, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, this basically has to include, you know, these symptoms, and also it needs to be in the absence of other medical psychiatric disorders. So, for example, a woman with chronic depression uh, certainly can have a premenstrual exacerbation. There's no question about that. A lot of diseases get worse on the uh, premenstrual. Even people with bad asthma can get worse asthma premenstrually. But basically, PMDD are people that are really fine, and then boom, you know, seven to ten days before their periods, they start feeling awful. First, second day, they start feeling much better. What's the best way to treat PMS or PMDD? host of things that you can do. I mean, there are certainly simple things that women can do, you know, without dealing with a healthcare professional. I mean, one thing that I feel is very helpful for women, and I think it helps me in helping treat them, um, is keeping a journal, you know, doing a daily log of symptoms. And there are, you know, places you can go on the web, you know, doctors can provide these things. You can just write them down, you know, do a calendar and, you know, list anxiety, how much am I feeling, you know, day one through 28 of the cycle or whatever, irritability, depression, sleep, breast discomfort, a whole constellation of symptoms that you can check off. And if somebody's really got, you know, significant uh, PMS or PMDD, you will see this pattern, you 
know, they're just fine, and then boom, seven to ten days before all the problems really start significantly. So journaling, you know, or keeping track of a calendar is one thing. As far as simple things to do, again, and the data on this, there are some studies to support some, and some there isn't. Um, you know, most people would, ex- would encourage a good exercise regime, uh, that endorphins, you know, in the brain are good for you no matter what. Eating properly, you know, good proper nutrition in general. Um, there is some literature to suggest that something like, you know, a complex carbo diet uh, before the period is helpful, avoiding a lot of salts and sugars may be helpful. There's a limited amount of data that shows that perhaps something as simple as calcium supplementation may help, you know, getting in 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day. Well, my attitude is, heck, that's something we all should be doing anyway, so why not? You know, same thing with diet and exercise. Um, and then there are some, you know, herbal-type approaches, vitamin-type approaches. There's been a little bit of work on these. Um, some people advocate a little vitamin B6, 100 milligrams a day of vitamin B6. Certainly a, a little vitamin E, two to 400 units may help with the breast discomfort. won't help much with the emotional stuff. There's been a limited amount of data on things like evening primrose oil. Those things may help as far as, you know, non-medical type intervention. And then fortunately, we do have some knowledge these days that some uh, medications may be helpful as well. Are there any benefits to PMS? Not that I can think of. Me neither. <laughs> that, that's something that I can't think of anything to say makes, you know, evolutionarily is, is something that's beneficial to women. No, I really can't think that there is. Tell us about menopause. Okay. Menopause, there are things that are evolutionarily beneficial. One of the theories about menopause uh, is that this is a good thing because we want women to be there to nurture children, that they shouldn't just be able to reproduce and die. <laughs> I know this sounds sort of stupid, um, but there's a whole school of thought about that in the medical anthropological world and stuff, that basically that if a woman can reproduce until her lifespan is over, who's going to be there to take care of the kids? And I won't make any sexist jokes about guys not taking care of kids, but, you know, in general, in most societies, women do most of the uh, child care. Um, and if a woman cannot reproduce, you know, for the last n number of years of her life, she'll be there to nurture children. She'll also be a good grandma to help take care of younger generations. So there actually is a fair amount of thought along those lines. So from an evolutionary point of view, you can see some benefit there. Years ago, open discussion about menopause was taboo. What happened? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there's certainly a lot more openness in the world for women. I mean, you know, women's lib, call it what you want, Um, that the women who are now entering menopause or in menopause are women who took control of their childbirth. Don't forget women, you know, were used to be put to sleep for deliveries, you know, knocked out and stuff like that. And then, you know, in the 60s, women really wanted to start being part of the birth process. And these are the women who are menopausal now. And I think they wanted to be educated, learn what's happening to their bodies, because there's some pretty profound changes that occur to women at the time of menopause. And, you know, of course, in the 50s, you know, women were given sedatives for menopause or even before that. You know, they were locked up. My actual theory about, uh, if you look at the 19th century British fiction, they used to talk about the crazy ladies in the attic. Uh, I think most of those were probably menopausal ladies, perimenopausal and menopausal ladies that they just wanted to uh, hide. And uh, these were sleep-deprived, pretty crazy folks, and they weren't appropriately uh, listened to or treated. And then, of course, by the 1950s, we were sedating everybody. Well, now we have a lot more information about how to help women get through many of the symptoms of menopause. But I think it became acceptable to talk about it. I mean, one of my standard lines to my uh, patients when we talk about, you know, one of the things I find helpful is finding out when mom went through menopause, you know, as far as somebody saying, well, when am I going to go through menopause? Because as you mentioned in the introduction that, you know, 45 to 59 is sort of pretty common ages. It can even start much earlier than that. There are some women doing menopause at age 35. A good predictor is family history. And, you know, I'll say to my patients, when did mom go through menopause? And she'll say, gee, I don't know. You know, my mom never went through menopause. (laughs) And I'll say, yeah, your mom and Queen Victoria, (laughs) neither one of them went through menopause because you weren't going to find out about it. But we know they did at some point, but you just didn't talk about it. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Mary Jane Minkin, author of A Woman's Guide to Menopause and Perimenopause and A Woman's Guide to Sexual Health. Dr. Minkin, who are the Red Hot Mamas? The Red Hot Mamas. It is actually, I think, the certainly one of the first and largest um, menopausal support groups. This is an educational group uh, for women going through menopause. The founder um, is a lovely lady named Karen Giblin, who I think sort of decided to found this organization. And I'm not saying anything out of, out of <laughs> you know, privacy stuff here. Karen talks about this all the time. That she started this organization when she herself uh, had a hysterectomy and had her ovaries taken out and was basically faced with no information. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was really very limited information out there on menopause. And so she really wanted, she was a nurse uh, by training, and she wanted to educate herself and uh, educate others about, you know, what is this lack of hormones all about and what am I doing? And of course, going through a surgical menopause is, you know, even more profound than going through a spontaneous physiologic menopause. She educated herself and decided to educate uh, the women of America. What's the difference between perimenopause and menopause? That's another excellent question. And perimenopause, in a sense, it's obviously a very ancient phenomenon because it's been going on forever, but the concept of discussing it is fairly new. One of the things that this has happened in the last 20, 30 years is the concept that menopause is a gradual process. I always kid around that, you know, when the first talk shows were on, you know, in the 70s and, you know, Phil Donahue was talking about these important women's health issues, that the concept was menopause occurred overnight. You went to bed premenopausal and you woke up postmenopausal and everything was all set. Well, this process is actually fairly gradual. The ovaries, as I described to my patients, poop out in a sort of slow manner for many people, may take five years, may take even longer as this process occurs. It's also not just a smooth curve as far as diminution of estrogen and progesterone production, which is, of course, what menopause is all about. But it may be, as I, I show my patients a graph of sort of a raggedy, jaggedy secretion of hormones. There are days your ovaries will do nothing, and there are days your ovaries will work twice as hard as they might normally be doing. The trend is downwards, but the symptoms can be all over the map. Um, that someday you'll get hot flashes because you're not making much estrogen. Some days you'll get breast tenderness because your ovaries on overdrive. And these can be very confusing to women. And I think that one of the things that that has emerged is this is a confusing time for folks. People can get symptoms even before their periods get really wacky. One of the challenges to physicians is to recognize, gee, maybe these symptoms that your patients are complaining about, maybe it's perimenopause. Maybe that's something you ought to explore. Uh, and I think that's very important. And when I teach my medical students, I try to emphasize to them, you know, I give them a lecture, I say, look, I realize that probably at most 5% of you or 10% of you in the class are going to be OBGYNs, but the other 90% of you are going to be dealing with patients, and they're going to come to you with a whole bunch of symptoms, and I just want you to include perimenopause in your differential diagnosis. How do women know, okay, I'm out of perimenopause and now I'm in menopause? That's an easy one if you have a uterus. <laughs> say, what the heck is she talking about? Um, basically, a menopause is defined as the cessation of periods for a year in the absence of hormonal therapy. So when a woman has her menstrual period, she goes a year without a period, you can say to her, okay, you are now fully menopausal. Um, if somebody doesn't have a uterus, if she's had a hysterectomy, that becomes a little trickier uh, because we're not going to sit there and sequentially measure blood levels on her every day. You, know, you don't want to do that to some, some poor patient. But you can get a sense, but it's a little harder to diagnose without a bleeding pattern to confirm what's going on. And how do women know, okay, I'm done with menopause? You're never done with menopause. <laughs> That's the 
thing. That basically, once you've gone a year without a period, you could say you are menopausal, or some people use the word postmenopausal. Okay, but you are in that state of affairs forever. Okay, until you die. Um, so now the, the key thing that my patients are interested in is I don't think they care about the terminology. I think they care about the symptoms. You know, what symptoms are going to be there? What are going to get worse? Going to get better? Things like that. I think that's the important thing that they need to find out. And as I tell them, the good news is for most women, and I emphasize most but not all, hot flashes do tend to get better over the course of time. You know, two to three years after that last menstrual period, that hot flashes are going to probably get better. A couple of interesting studies have shown that even 10 years after menopause, although 85% of women are, as I describe it, either perfect or pretty darn good, you know, a rare hot flash, there are still going to be about 12% of women, this is after 10 years, that they're going to have pretty moderate hot flashes, and about 3% of women will persist with severe hot flashes. And in my experience, I think that's pretty true. You know, it's a minority, but there are people who have persistent hot flashes. The other thing that's also important to realize is that for many women, the perimenopausal symptoms, such as the hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, can be worse in the perimenopause than it is in the postmenopausal time frame. Dr. Minkin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Susan, for asking me to be with you. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.